questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and I want to welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do by now. After so many years, just click on the subscribe button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or simply have feedback, you know that I always love to hear from you. Click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. Despite millennia of fame, the origins of the Great Pyramid of Giza are shrouded in mystery, believed to be the tomb of an Egyptian king. Even though no remains have ever been found, its construction date of roughly 2550 BCE is tied to only one piece of evidence, the crudely painted marks within the pyramid's hidden chambers that refer to the 4th Dynasty King Khufu, discovered in 1837 by Colonel Howard Weiss and his team. But did he? Tonight's special guest is the author of The Great Pyramid Hoax, the conspiracy to conceal the true history of ancient Egypt. His name is Scott Creighton, an engineer whose extensive travels have allowed him to explore many of the world's ancient sacred sites. The host of the Alternative Egyptology Forum on AboveTopSecret.com, he is the author of The Secret Chamber of Osiris and co-author of The Giza Prophecy, and he joins us directly from Glasgow, Scotland. Hello, Scott, and thank you for joining us on Veritas. How are you? I'm very well, Mel. Thanks for that lovely introduction. It's good to it's good to be here. My pleasure, and uh, always appreciate those of you who are in Europe and other parts of the world to join us so late at night. I know you have a you have probably a bucket of coffee there to keep you awake. So much appreciated. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> what is the premise? Let's begin with that. What is the premise? Of your book, The Great Pyramid Hoax. Okay, well, basically, it's uh, it says exactly what it um, does on the tin, um, as we say here in Scotland, Mel. Um, basically, it's about uh, you know the, the Great Pyramid of Giza is aged or it's dated by primarily by one key piece of evidence, and that are these painted what they're called quarry marks and these are red painted um, or ochre painted marks that Colonel Howard Weiss and his team as you said at the top of the show there and then the introduction found in these hidden chambers of the Great Pyramid. Now this was in 1837. This was a time when you know Egyptology was very much and it's or the study of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics was very much in its infancy, and it was a time when hieroglyphics and hieratic text um, was, you know, very little understood. Champollion had only cracked the hieroglyphics about 15 years prior to Howard Weiss arriving in Egypt. So you know, we knew very little about hieroglyphics at that time. You know, so these marks when Howard Weiss found them and found the name Khufu in these hidden chambers, which he had to blast open with gunpowder. You know, this is uh, gunpowder archaeology we're talking about here in 1837. He had to blast these open. He finds this cartouche of a king, an ancient Egyptian king, in this pyramid, in this secret chamber. That's a number of chambers in actual fact. It wasn't just the one chamber that Vice found these marks. There were four chambers in total. Um, so he finds these marks in there, and these essentially became the holy grail of evidence for Egyptology because in finding this cartouche of a king, the Egyptology knew 
the, uh, from the king lists that they had constructed when this particular king reigned in Egypt, in ancient Egypt. They knew when he reigned, and it was 2550 BC. So by finding this king's name in this hidden chamber that had been sealed since the pyramid was constructed, Egyptologists then said, well, here we have the clincher piece of evidence that allows us to date the pyramid conclusively. They found the cartouche in a sealed chamber. King Khufu, he lived in this date, and that's it. Bang, you've got the date of the pyramid. However, uh, as you know, the Great Pyramid Hoax presents a whole host of evidence from all different sources. Um, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, sources that include Vice's published works, his private um, diaries, um, which I managed to track down, um, facsimile drawings, um, you know, other uh, surveys that were done at the time by a guy called John Perring, one of Vice's assistants. You know, so we've got all this chemical analysis of the actual marks. You know, we've got all this new evidence, which has only recently come to light that I've gathered together in this book. Also got eyewitnesses, I should add that, all together in this book, in the one place, which basically shows in my opinion, pretty conclusively that these marks were faked in 1837. These are a Victorian hoax. These marks are not real. Therefore, the evidence, the Egyptology, this crucial piece of evidence, it's just bunk and it should not be applied and should be removed. And we should revisit the Great Pyramid basically back to basics with it to try and understand what it was, who built it, and when they built it, why they built it. You know, so we need to go back to basics. And I like to go in chronological order because this is almost like a forensic, well, I don't want to say criminal because it's not a criminal case, but almost. But let's begin with the question about you. What got you interested in, in ancient history, first of all? <laughs> well, Honestly, Mel, as a, as a, a small child, you know, I was um, basically being interested in particularly ancient Egyptian history as a very small boy. I think most kids um, learning, you know, about the ancient Egyptian civilization in primary school or junior school, um, you know, were really, really fascinated by these amazing structures. I mean, these things are ancient, you know, that 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 just adds mystery. They're they're huge, they're enormous, they're they're bigger than dinosaurs, you know, these things. And you know, to me as a kid, dinosaurs were just wow, you know. So these things are just ancient, they're enormous. And they were built for one guy. That just blew my mind, you know. So I was interested, you know, as a kid. But then, you know, as 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 you grow up and you get older, you know, you start to realise that what you've been taught in school, you know, isn't the whole picture. And actually, what you're taught in school, it's just a theory that these were the tombs of the king, the instrument of rebirth. For the king, it's just a theory, albeit, okay, it's the mainstream theory, but nevertheless, a theory. And what you realise is that there's all these unanswered questions. And that, for me, Mel, that, for me, was the big thing. You know, where are the answers to these questions? Why did Sneferu build three pyramids, possibly four? You know, why did he need four pyramids when he's only got one body. What What's all this grain doing? And, you know, early explorers of the, the Step Pyramid at Saqqara, these people were walking through corridors filled up to, up to their shins in grain, walking through these long passages filled with grain. They found 40,000 vessels in these pyramids. What was that all about? Why did... Giovanni Belzoni in 1818 when he entered the middle pyramid, not the Great Pyramid the, the one in the middle at Giza it looks like the Great Pyramid because it looks the biggest but it's actually um, the Pyramid of Khafra. 
when he entered the, the main chamber, I don't call it the burial chamber because they weren't burial chambers. When he entered the main chamber of the middle pyramid, he finds the granite box. He manages to prise off the lid with some difficulty and he finds it filled with earth, plain old Egyptian earth. Why? You know, so there's all these questions. And, you know, for me, it's like, what's going on? What were these really tombs? Well, why is that being filled with earth? You know, all these questions. Why did he need four burial tombs? You know, it just didn't make, didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. So for me, it's about finding answers which make sense to me. So in that sense, it's, a, it's kind of a personal, a sort of personal quest, um, Mel, for, for me to find answers which satisfied my curiosity better. So um, the best place, in my opinion, you know, to start looking about, you know, who we are as a, as a species, where, where, do the, where do we fit into the grand scheme of things? The pyramids, the most ancient structures in the world seem to me like probably you know, the, the most natural place to start that quest. Like you, as a child, I've always been curious. And when I used to look at these magnificent monoliths everywhere around the world, not only the pyramids of Giza, but so many others around the world, I would wonder, why can't we replicate them today? They're so beautiful. They're so magnificent. Why can't we replicate them today? Do we have the architects and engineers who could do that? Do we have the computer power? And nobody could answer the question because they can't. And also, you probably have heard the name Sahi Hawash. And if anybody questioned the authenticity of the things that we find there or questioned the history, he would get very upset or kick you out of the country. And, you know, if I live in a house that's 100 years old, I assume nobody would wonder if I built it. So why do we always assume that the Egyptians built those structures? Why couldn't they have been nomads that came along, found the structures, and all of a sudden decided, you know, this looks like a great place to build a tomb. And all of a sudden, everybody believes that that's what it was. Your take on that? Well, yeah. I mean, this, what you're touching on there, Mel, is actually a lot of work in my previous book, The Secret Chamber of Osiris, um, where I speculate my own um, ideas about what these structures were really all about. So that's in the previous book, which you know, as I, as I say, it's it's my own personal opinions, speculations, but not not just purely speculations. You know, it's founded on evidence which which I present in that book, um, the latest book, the Great Pyramid Hoax. That's pure Egyptology. That's me looking at a particular topic a particular hot topic, an issue in current Egyptology and saying, hey, you guys, you're saying these marks are genuine. Uh-uh, no, I don't think so. Look at this evidence. You know, so that, you know, the latest book is pure Egyptology. It's, you know, it's not speculation. It's pure asking questions about hard, you know, evidence, looking at um, particular evidence and asking questions about it, you know, so that's, you know, the two separate things here. But to get back to your question, what were these structures all about? In the secret chamber of Osiris, I speculate that uh, it's probably more to do with what the alternative narrative that has come down to us tells us. The legends that have been preserved by the Arabic chroniclers. They tell us that the ancient Egyptians were anticipating something happened long, long, long ago. We don't know how far back in antiquity we're talking about here. We just don't know. My own guess is it's, it's more than tens of thousands of years we're talking about here. Something happened in the heavens and the ancient Egyptian king as his astronomer priests, what does this mean? They'd noticed that the stars had moved away from their normal course. This, you know, the sun and the moon were rising differently. You know, so these these things 
apparently had happened in the heavens. And the king asked, what does this mean of his astronomer priest? They said to the king, well, in 300 years' time, there will be a great flood and it will destroy the entire kingdom. So this king, his name was um, Saurid, King Saurid, ancient Egyptian king. Um, There's some speculation that that may then have been corrupted into the name Sufis, which then became Khufu. We don't know, that's just conjecture. Anyway, Saurid decides that, well, what we're going to do, we are going to build all these pyramid arcs. And inside each of these structures, we are going to place everything that the kingdom needs to reconstitute itself, to, to be reborn again after the worst effects of this flood have passed. So that is the alternative narrative that has come down to us via the Arabic scholars, chroniclers. You know, so, well, is there any proof of that? Well, the interesting thing is, when you go, as I I spoke just a few moments ago, the Step Pyramid at Saqqara, the very first um, explorers of that pyramid, Francis Firth, he was down there in... I think the 1920s under this pyramid, the step pyramid at Saqqara. And he was walking through passages. You know, there's lots of kilometres of passages under this pyramid filled with grain, all sorts of different seed types that was found. 40,000 vessels were found in these um, galleries. Uh, You know, so these are the kind of things, tools, were found, you know, these are the kind of things that they would have stored inside these arcs, you know, in order to reconstitute um, their kingdom again. So that was my, not my theory, I'm, I'm basically looking at that story, that, that legend that has come down to us that tells us a completely different thing from them being tombs. And I looked at that and I said, well, what evidence is there to support this particular narrative? And I found, you know, all sorts of evidence at Saqqara and the Great Pyramid. There's um, secondary circumstantial evidence there that it was once filled with massive amounts of grain. You know, so that is my kind of um, ideas there. And it's supported also in things like the pyramid texts. Uh, These are the most ancient religious texts that we have anywhere in the world and these were found in the small fifth dynasty pyramids um, the mud brick pyramids basically built um, you know some considerable considerable time after the giant pyramids were built and inside these small pyramids there's these texts and they say that the pyramid is Osiris the pyramid is the grain. So these are two utterances in the pyramid text. And I looked into this. We know that Osiris, he was a god, the ancient Egyptian god of rebirth. The ancient Egyptian god of agriculture. You know, so you're beginning to see these these connections. These texts, the pyramid texts, they also tell us the, the story of Isis and Osiris, the myth of Isis and Osiris, and how Seth, Osiris's brother, um, cut Osiris's body up into 16 pieces and scattered them across the land of the Nile. What we find, remember, these pyramid texts say Osiris is the pyramid. What you then find, Mel, if you look at a map of Egypt, is that the very first 16 pyramids that the ancient Egyptians completed you know, along the banks of the Nile, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the classical or the iconic image of Osiris standing proud with his arms crossed with the crook and flail, the royal regalia. Sure. And the, sure. the three-pronged atif crown with the centre prong slightly higher than the, the two at the side. You know, so this is a classic image of Osiris. And if you point, sorry, if you plot the three uh, points of the Atif crown and the key intersection points of the the royal regalia and, you know, the the legs, you know, the key points on this iconic 
figure of Osiris, if you plot them, what you're actually find doing, you're doing is plotting the locations of the first 16 pyramids that the ancient Egyptians built. You can actually take a Google map, plot these 16 pyramids, and you end up with an outline figure of the classic, iconic Osiris image. It's right there on the ground, you know. So there you have that. That is Osiris. It was filled with grain, and this is what you find, Mel, that the ancient Egyptians of later dynasties, long after the fourth dynasty, you find that the later dynasties of ancient Egypt, they were making these small. Uh, they call them corn mummies or grain mummies. And what is basically just a mud doll. And in, they would carve a, a hollow inside this doll and they would fill it, the, the gap, the hollow with grain. And then, you know, they would uh, seal it again and bind the mud doll of Osiris with, with linen. And they would bury this in the ground and put a rock on top of it, you know, symbolising the pyramid. You know, the body of Osiris filled with grain because these first 16 pyramids that were scattered along the banks of the Nile literally were the cut-up body of Osiris filled with grain. You know, so it's all these different things that, that I've tried to kind of pull together. You know, the pyramid text, the myth of Osiris and Isis, the the locations of these first 16 pyramids. You know, the the fact that in the middle pyramid, uh, Belzoni found this box filled with earth. You know, that's the other thing you find these later uh, dynasties of ancient Egypt were doing during a festival, the, an Assyrian festival called the Festival of Koak. What they would do is they would make a small stone box or wooden box about 18 inches long, a few inches deep. They would fill this with earth and scatter some grain, put the lid on the box, bury it in a hole in the ground and place a big rock on top symbolising the pyramid. And that is exactly what Giovanni Belzoni found inside the middle pyramid at Giza. In 1818, as I explained earlier, he found the stone granite box in the main chamber filled with earth. And that was probably the archetype of the the small later ceremonial boxes that the later dynasties were making, because they knew what this um, ritual was all about. It wasn't about the rebirth of a king. It was about the rebirth of a kingdom, the rebirth of the earth, the the land of Egypt. That's what this ritual um, or this festival of Koak was all about. And that is why we find inside the second pyramid this stone box filled with earth. So who was Colonel Richard William Howard Visa? And why is he so relevant to your research? And what did you find about his travels in Egypt and Syria in 1842? Um, I've studied more about um, his his time um, from 1836 to 1837 because that's when he was mainly doing his explorations um, of the Great Pyramids at Giza, uh, the, but all the pyramids at Giza. Um, Vice Mel, he was he. It was from a very wealthy family, um, from the British ruling classes, a military family with strong connections to the British aristocracy. Um, this guy was connected. He was well connected to like the, the Duke of Cumberland, the Duke of Norfolk, um, the elite of society, the ruling classes. That, that was Vice's background. So money wasn't an, an issue for Howard Vice. A lot of people thought that, well, you know, he's doing this stuff in the pyramid to, to make a fortune, and he was running out of money. This was one of the things that Sitchin claimed in, in some of his works, um, that Vice was running out of money. Well, he wasn't. Vice was mega, mega wealthy. He was a rich, rich man. Um, you know, he was also a bit of a military martinet. Uh, that's basically a, a disciplinarian you know, a strict disciplinarian, a man of very, very little humour, apparently. 
and also he was a man of very profound religious beliefs. This guy, Howard Weiss, believed in the literal truth of the Bible. He believed in the biblical flood. He believed in the creation, as a lot of people um, did in those times. Weiss believed that the creation would have taken place according to Bishop Usher in 4004 BCE. You know, as I said, as a lot of people did at that time, because at that time the church still had quite an influence on everyday life. You know, so the other things that we know about Colonel Weiss is that he was very interested in politics. His family um, were very much interested in politics. His father and Weiss both became MPs, that's Members of Parliament, to the UK Parliament in Westminster. They, they or rather Howard Weiss, the, the son whom we're talking about, he actually, we now know this from material that has uh, be, been uncovered, that he essentially bribed his way to winning his parliamentary seat in the United Kingdom Parliament. Um, so we can say for sure that Vice was certainly a man who would wasn't shy to adopt underhand underhanded means and tactics to get basically what he wanted. He wasn't shy to step across the line between you know legal and illegal. He he would go there. He wasn't he wasn't afraid to do that. It would seem from what what we know um, of the material that has been uncovered. But as for um, you know this forgery that I say and believe there's sufficient evidence to show took place in 1837. As for that, his motive for that, well, I think you know his motive for that is probably the most obscure thing of all, really, and we probably won't really know with any great certainty exactly what it was um, that compelled Howard Weiss to do this to commit this um, hoax, to perpetrate this forgery. But we can speculate on a number of things just by knowing a little bit of this guy's character. I think possibly one of the things would simply be, you know, um, self-notoriety. Throughout his published books, Vice tells us that he was very keen to find either the original burial, or the, the true burial of Khufu, because remember, nothing was found in the, the main chamber of the Great Pyramid. So it was believed that Khufu may be buried somewhere else in a hidden chamber inside the pyramid. So when Weiss discovered these um, chambers, he believed that Khufu's actual burial might be in one of these chambers. So Scott, he, he was he was a religious. I don't mean to interject here, but he was a religious man. At the same time, we 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 think he may have committed fraud here, so that makes him you know a little hypocrite. But yep. he had more of a passion for archaeology than he ever did for the military. So the question is, why would Vise have wanted to perpetrate a hoax of this nature within the Great Pyramid, and what, if anything, would he have gained by doing so? Well, again, as, as I was saying, this touches on his, his motive. I, I personally think it was possibly self-notoriety. At this time as well, you have to remember that there was intense competition um, in Egypt at this time between, you know, the British, the French, the Germans, Italians. You know, these guys were there and were all making these amazing discoveries in other parts of Egypt. And Howard Weiss was, was finding precisely not a lot. He was finding some things and sending these, these items back to the British Museum. But he wasn't finding what he, he set out, what he hoped to find, which was either Khufu's actual burial or, he says this quite explicitly, in his published books, he desired to find a cartouche that would help to date the pyramid. 
that that those are what he says explicitly he wanted to find. Now he spent somewhere in the order. This is in today's term, $1.3 million. That's about £10,000 in 1837. Now, that's a lot of money, and it has to be said, it's a lot of incentive to make sure that he didn't come away from his explorations at Giza with nothing. That's a lot of incentive to find something, um, even you know if it's you know not exactly bona fide. But the thing I think possibly was maybe his main motive was his religious beliefs. Probably, I suggest in the book, that because he very much believed in the creation, he was concerned, as was the church, when St. Paulio started, um, you know, unravelling and deciphering the hieroglyphics, the church agreed to fund Sampolion's trip to Egypt, or partially fund it, along with some others in 1828, uh, in order for Sampolion to continue his studies. But the church agreed to partially fund it on the provision that Sampolion did not reveal any texts that might undermine the teachings of the church. And I think Vice was perhaps of a similar mind, and he went out of his way to ensure that this could never happen with the Great Pyramid, that by placing the cartouche of Khufu in these chambers, the Great Pyramid would then, from that day forth, be within the realm of God's creation. That's the the only way I can um, sort of describe this um, possible uh, motive. There's also, you know, the idea that, um, you know, British national pride and prestige possibly played a part as well, because as I said earlier, other countries, explorers were finding more important things than Vice was at that time. So he was desperate to, to find this cartouche, and that is exactly what he found. So this trip to Egypt literally was an ego trip. He wanted to find something great, so that his name would have a pride of place in, in world history books. Well, yeah, he tells us quite explicitly, Mel, he wanted to find either the original, the true burial of Khufu, or a cartouche that would help to date the pyramid. He says this quite explicitly, and he says it a number of times, that he wanted to find something important. He says it over and over in his published accounts. So, yeah, you know, for me, I think... A big motive right there when you read things like that, it it goes towards, it speaks of self-notoriety. How was the late Sakara Sitchin involved in all of this? Well, Zechariah published a book in 1980, I think it was, The Stairway to Heaven. Yep, Stairway to Heaven. And in 2007, the myth, Journeys to the Mythical Past. Now, in his first book, Zechariah, this is where he claimed, he was the first person to claim that, that these marks in these chambers were fake. Now, as I said, he was the first person to do this. Now, some of the evidence that um, Zechariah brought forth to back up that particular argument are still good today, they still stand. But there's some other evidence that he presented at that time, which has basically fallen by the wayside because, well, at the end of the day, he, he didn't do his research well enough in the, those particular issues. And he could have done, you know, taken a bit more time and, you know, nailed it a bit better. But unfortunately, he didn't. And some pieces of his evidence have unraveled, which is why guys like Graham Hancock and Robert Baval, uh, who initially backed Zechariah's claim, have backed off a bit from the forgery claim that he made. But I know Graham Hancock in recent times, he's actually uh, come come forward again towards um, the, the forgery theory, especially, I think, given all the evidence that has now come forward that I've presented in the Great Pyramid hoax. So Graham has actually 
changed his position again. He's not saying he now fully accepts it or backs it, but he's saying basically that he may have been too hasty to reject Zechariah's position. He's now seen all this new evidence that's come forward. So Graham, he's, I think it's probably fair to say he's maybe on the fence now with regards to this um, particular hoax or this particular issue. So Zechariah, he got some things wrong, which you know, really didn't help matters. He claimed, for example, that he had been to see the facsimile drawings of Mr. Hill. This was an assistant of Howard Weiss, whom Howard Weiss had asked to make one-to-one copies or facsimile copies of the marks in these chambers, which Mr. Hill duly did. And these facsimile drawings, you can find them in the British Museum. So apparently Sitchin went to see these in the British Museum. And in The Stairway to Heaven, he writes that the circle in the Khufu cartouche should have contained diagonal lines, which is actually wrong. It doesn't require diagonal lines, but Zechariah seemed to think that it did. We know that's not the case. He also said that the circle that he saw had only a centre dot, which you know contra- contradicted. Um, you know that that meant the the reading was Rafu or Raufu and not Kufu. But when you look at the actual marks themselves, if you get a photograph, or better still, go to the actual chamber and look at the Khufu cartouche on the actual roof block, you can see that the circle actually has three horizontal lines. So why Mr. Why Zechariah saying Mr. Hill drew a circle with just a centre dot? Now that is really strange. Why would that be the case? So I went myself to investigate this. I looked at these drawings and I looked at this particular cartouche with this centre dot that Sitchin claimed was there. It wasn't there. It simply wasn't there. The circle I saw in the Khufu cartouche was a circle with three lines, just like it is in the actual chamber. So I have no idea what Zechariah was was doing was was doing there at all because it's just wrong. So anyway, he got that bit wrong, and because of that, you know, it kind of set the whole um, forgery hypothesis back quite a number of years um, until, I suppose, in the last few years, you know, I took up the the gauntlet and and ran with it, took up the baton and and ran with it, and we have um, the situation where. The more I looked, you know, everywhere I looked virtually, I was finding evidence these marks are fake. Now, f- for someone to determine if it's a fake, there must be some predetermined studies or expertise. How did Sakurai determine that it was a hoax when, when you have people like, say, Professor Robert Schock, a geologist, by the way, the late Sitchin and Professor Shock have been veterans of this radio program. When Robert Shock went there, what did he find? And I believe he said that it was genuine and not a host. Am I right? Yeah. Um, Dr. Shock looked at the marks in these chambers. Now, I'll say up front here right away, Mel, I haven't actually been in the physical chambers myself. I have been inside the Great Pyramid a number of times. I've not been to the relieving chambers. That's these chambers which face opened, which are high above the the main chamber of the Great Pyramid, known known as the King's Chamber. Now, Zechariah hadn't been there either. Dr. Robert Schock has been in there, and he's taken some excellent photographs, high-resolution photographs of the marks there, which are on his website, and I've analysed those endlessly, as well as a number of other high-resolution photographs from some other explorers of that chamber. Now, one of the things uh, Dr. Shock said about 
the marks in Campbell's chamber was that he saw when he was looking at them up close, some crystals had formed over the surface of these painted quarry marks, indicating, you know, a, a considerable age. So that kind of convinced Dr. Shock. Plus he also said that some of the marks went into between tight-fitting blocks where it was just impossible for anyone to get a paintbrush and draw anything meaningful between these tight gaps, uh, you know, between these adjoining blocks. The thing is, what Dr. Shaw also goes on to say when he noticed the crystallisation on top of these marks is that this crystallisation can take centuries. He says it can take thousands of years or it can take centuries. You know, so, well, that, that doesn't really tell us very much because the chambers themselves have actually already been open and exposed to the elements for about two centuries, almost two centuries now. So that crystallisation could have occurred, you know, from when Howard Weiss opened, you know, those chambers to now. You know, so that particular piece of evidence that Dr. Shock presented doesn't really tell us very much. So that was that piece of evidence. As I said, the other piece that he said about the marks between these tight gaps in the blocks. Well, I think as I explained in the book, if you actually look at I, I spoke to Graham Hancock about this, and um, Graham explained to me, because Graham's also been in these chambers, and he's been allowed to examine, you know, totally freely every everywhere in these chambers. He was allowed to go um, by Dr. Hawass. And Graham managed to shine a torch between these, these blocks, these tight-fitting blocks, and I asked him, well, were there any cartouches in there? And he said, no. I said, well, what was in there? What what was what marks are in these tight gaps? And says, well, they didn't really look like you know regular registers of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. They were just like random masons' marks, you know, like the odd line and triangle, but not actual hieratic or you know hieroglyphic marks. So and certainly, absolutely, there's no cartouches at all between these gaps. So. Again, that tells us nothing really. But in saying that as well, um, I explain in the book, even though you cannot get a paintbrush between these gaps to paint anything meaningful, it is actually still possible to get these marks into these tight gaps. You just have to think a little bit laterally you know, to, to do this. It's, it's, it's not as difficult as it looks. But this is one of the things you know, the Egyptology holds up as proof that the marks must be genuine because there's these marks between these gaps where nobody could get a brush. Well, I'm sorry, it's meaningless because according to people that have looked in these gaps, there are no hieratic marks and there's certainly no cartouches in there. And thirdly, even if there was anything meaningful in there, you can still do it without a paintbrush, you can still get marks into those type gaps and explain how that's done in the book. So, um, at the end of the day, um, Dr. Shock, although he he's said these things, I don't believe personally that that particular evidence um, you know, helps the argument either way. Now, when I think of all of this, I think of the journal. How did you go about uh, finding Vice's private journal first? Well, when you look at Vice's actual published book, you realize that it is a journal. He's basically writing his three volumes as a journal. From when he arrived in Egypt, I think in 18, December 1836, all the way through to when he leaves Egypt in August, I think, 1837. So it stands to reason that if he is writing, if his published book is based on a journal, then there must be handwritten journal somewhere because most people when they're writing a journal or a diary, this is essentially a diary, 
they tend not to get rid of their diaries. You know, they tend to kind of hold on to them. So it, it basically stood to reason, Mel, that there would be a diary of you know, Colonel Vice's original handwritten notes would have been preserved somewhere. And it turns out that I'd looked for these a couple of times, sort of half-heartedly, not not with any great endeavour, half-heartedly looked for them. And then one day um, I was doing something and there it was, it popped up on the internet. I think possibly they'd only been maybe archived recently on, on the internet oh, you can't actually look at the journals just just the, the label the archive label, the reference number popped up and they were basically held in a small archive centre in a small town called Aylesbury which is to the north of London um, so my wife Louise and I went down once we'd, we'd located them went down to see if this was you know the real thing and sure enough we got there, there was 600 pages of Colonel Weiss's original notes from his time in Egypt in 1837. This was his original diary with his original private thoughts written on these these 600 pages. And my goodness, Mel, I went there with the purpose of trying to prove or find something else but ended up finding something completely different and a lot more than I had ever actually bargained for. Did the, while you were reading the journals, did you get any inkling of what he was trying to accomplish? I mean, take a, a, a his assistant, J.R. Hill. Uh, if Vise was the one taking the credit, what would Hill take part of it? Well, it's a difficult one to – what you have to understand is that Vice's private journal, these are his private personal thoughts. Now, the problem is with Vice's private notes, his handwriting is excruciatingly difficult to read and it is unbelievable. There's some parts of it that are reproduced, um, just small sections of it are reproduced in the book, and you can see from that his handwriting is extremely difficult to read. And you can only, I only managed to, to do it with the help of some handwriting experts, also by cross-referencing reference, his um, published um, book with his private notes. You know, so that's that's how I managed to um, get to grips with um, you know Colonel Vice's handwriting. You know, so we find out most of his relationship between Mister Hill and his other assistants, Mister Raven and Mister Pering, from his published book. But because, what, what I'm saying is because the things that drew my attention initially when we, when I first saw his handwritten notes when I was in Aylesbury in this archive centre, what drew my attention wasn't his handwriting. It was the hieroglyphics that he'd actually written on the page. You know, he... Um, it was a bizarre, bizarre experience... I could barely read his handwriting, but I could understand the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics which he'd written on the page. And these were basically he'd written, this is a cartouche in Campbell's chamber. And he'd made a copy of the cartouche twice, two, actually in three different places in these notes. And Those two, are the facsimiles? Yeah, no, no. These, these, these are. This is Vice drawing in his private notes, his okay. diary, small copies of cartouche and the cartouche that's in Campbell's chamber, and he writes beside it, cartouche in Campbell's chamber. And he does this twice, but the thing is, the cartouche is different from the one in Campbell's chamber on these two occasions, and then eventually he draws one in his diary which is correct. Finally, he draws one, which is 
what is actually in Campbell's chamber, but you can see him editing things. It's kind of difficult to, to explain, um, but you can see on this particular page that he knows he's got something wrong, and you can see these edits that he's making, and he's cross-referencing his edits to get a final version of the cartouche, which is actually correct. And that's the one we see in the chamber today. You know, so there's also parts in this diary. And just to let you know, the very first chamber, remember I said earlier, Mel, that Howard Weiss was desperate to find either Khufu's original burial or a cartouche that would help to date the pyramid. So he was... Both. These are the things... Yeah, he yeah he was saying he wanted to find these. Now, here's the thing: the first chamber that Vice managed to open was a chamber called uh, Wellington's Chamber, named after the Duke of Wellington, British hero of the Napoleonic Wars. Now, this chamber is actually above Davison's Chamber. Davison's Chamber. There's five of these chambers, or relieving chambers, small chambers. They're only about three feet high by about 30 feet long. And you can't stand up fully in these chambers. Now, the first one, Davison's Chamber, that had been open for about 70 years before Vice went to Egypt. A guy called Nathaniel Davison discovered it. But here's the intriguing thing. He didn't find a single quarry mark in that chamber. The only ones where the quarry marks we find are the ones that Vice opened. Now, the very first chamber that Vice opened above Davison's chamber, he Vice called Wellington's chamber, Vice enters this chamber, okay, and he explores it. This is in his private notes, incidentally, which eventually I managed to be able to, to, to read. After months and months of study, I have to say. In Wellington's chamber, then he returns the following night with a couple of his assistants, and in his diary, he writes, there are some red painted marks, but nothing like hieroglyphics. Okay? Now, I've looked at these red painted marks, and sure enough, they're very odd looking. It's like, um, it's like geometric symbols. They're, they're very odd. In a kind of sort of half oblong shape, uh, there's these strange geometric symbols that don't look like Egyptian marks at all. But we know they're genuine because Vice is there. He's the first guy to ever see them. So those marks are genuine. These strange geometric symbols that he found on the wall um, near to the entrance. And then he, so he, he notices those marks and then he says, but there's nothing like hieroglyphics. This is the second time in this chamber with um, two assistants who'd also been examining this chamber, looking, obviously, for whatever, a body, a cartouche, whatever. So, nothing like hieroglyphics. That's what he says. Now, when you go to his published account of the very same night, he says, on this night, we found the quarry marks. So there you have it. Right away there is a contradiction, a major contradiction. <laughs> are they quarry marks? Well, the hieroglyphs. Are they hieroglyphs or are the or are the they... Mark. Go ahead. I was going to say the hieroglyphs. Are they hieroglyphs or are they graffiti? Well, there's a, there's a distinction here. Hieroglyphics are essentially um, genuinely, you know, the, generally they are the monumental writing. Right. You'll find on um, like large monuments, you know, and you know temples and so forth. They'll be sculpted into the stonework. That generally, generally speaking, are your hieroglyphics. And hieroglyphics over the whole period of ancient Egyptian history, they never really changed, not very much. Hieratic text, which is what we find in these chambers, is basically the everyday writing that they used with um, paint or with a, 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 a reed and ink. You know, it's just a, a shorthand version of the the, high, the sculpted hieroglyphics. So that's a hieratic text. It's just basically painted hieroglyphics, a painted, sculpted, you know, the, it's just a painted version of the sculpted 
hieroglyphics, sorry, hieratic markings. But the thing about hieratic markings is that over a long period of time, they evolved and changed. They became simplified, much simpler, so that you know they could be written even even faster. That was the you know the the whole idea of the hieratic script in the first place was that it's a shorthand, quick way of um, writing things down rather than spending hours, weeks, days, months laboriously chiseling you know hieroglyphics into stone. So that's the kind of uh, main difference between hieratic and, and hieroglyphics. Now, as I said, uh, Vice found these red marks which don't look like... You know, when Vice uses the word hieroglyphics, he's meaning quarry marks because he interchanges as You see this in his published book. Vice uses the word quarry marks and the word hieroglyphics interchangeably. They mean the same thing to Vice because in Vice's time, there was no such... They didn't really understand the difference between, you know... Uh, the hieratic marks and hieroglyphics, they didn't understand that, you know, hieratic marks, the painted hieroglyphics changed over time. They didn't really understand that too well, that the orthography of the marks would change, these hieratic marks would change over time and they would become radically different from the source hieroglyphic equivalent. You know, so Vice is looking at these marks, he says these geometric symbols, yeah, they are nothing like, um, you know, they, they are, it says there's some red marks, but nothing like hieroglyphics, nothing like quarry marks, painted quarry marks, which he would have seen elsewhere in and around Giza. So he's saying there's, there's nothing like hieroglyphics, which, as I said, that's, he's basically meaning there's nothing like quarry marks. And yet, in his published account, Mel, when you read that of the very same night, he says, we found the quarry marks. And he didn't. He's basically saying we found hieroglyphics. He didn't. But then, not according to his um, diary, but then when you go and look at Mr. Hill's facsimile drawings, guess what we find from that chamber where no hieroglyphics were present according to Vice's private notes we find a cartouche from that chamber. Where did that come from? Now for the listeners, when you define the word cartouche. A cartouche. The cartouche is basically the name of the king. It's very distinctive. It's like a it's like a, a bombshell shape. Um, if you imagine the sort of iconographic well, like shape. a shell. I see. Yeah, like a shell. Okay. Yeah, a bombshell. Sure. You know, and the the symbols would be inside in the middle of the, the bombshell shape, and that that's where it, it's like a bullet casing. That's where um, it comes from. The French um, cartridge or cartouche. Sure. Uh, sure. That's that's where it comes from, and it's very distinctive. And that is any time you see that shape, the symbols inside it represent the name of a king. And we have to take our one and only break and we'll get back with the second hour in a moment but before we'll leave I'll leave with this question do we have any proof Scott of, of who built the pyramids and have we looked at the chambers for any signs perhaps the work gangs uh, which some people consider to have been slaves could they have been could they have left a specific signature they used and you know it comes to mind for example uh, in China we have these pyramids that are now farmers are farming on top of them, and there are red-headed mummies. The Chinese don't want people to find out because they don't want the world to know that perhaps before the Chinese were there, other cultures were there. I'd like to discuss this part with you if that's not too much deviation from your topic. Also, I want to know what the what's so wrong with the mainstream view of the pyramids, but how can people buy The Great Pyramid Hoax and all your other books? Yeah, they can go on to the publisher in our traditions, uh, Bearing Company. Um, they can go into any high street store, any good high street 
store, or they can shop online at the you know providers such as Amazon, uh, Goodreads, you know online providers like that. Excellent. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. Much more to discuss with Scott Creighton directly from Scotland. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You don't want to miss the rest. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for lots of great products. Thank you.